Welcome to Safa Security Chat Chat, episode 139 for the 19th of March, 2014. I'm Chester Wisniewski here with my colleague Paul Ducklin. Hey, Paul. Hello again, Chester. Uh, I wasn't able to attend the CanSec West conference this year, uh, but I saw on Naked Security that you were able to uh, cover the, the Pwn to Own contest, which is probably what's made CanSec somewhat of a, a globally famous conference, is this collection of piles of cash that get traded for zero-day vulnerabilities in browsers and, and other platforms. Uh, what's the scoop this year? What happened? Well, in terms of the amount that was paid out by the sponsors, which is HP and Google, top of the list was Firefox and IE11. They cost the sponsors $200,000 each. Then Chrome cost 160 k Adobe Flash at 150 k Adobe Reader at 75,000 of your American dollars, Apple Safari on OS X at 65 large, and believe it or not, at the bottom of the list, unbroken and unbowed, Oracle's Java plugin, zero dollars. Well, and we thought that browsers were free, but clearly this kind of contradicts that. At least they're not free if you're HP or Google. No, they ended up paying out 850000 out of a total prize fund that could have been uh, $1,085,000. Strange amount, but that's how it came out. Were there any surprises in this? I mean, I guess, uh, you know, Java must be the most secure product by some of the arguments that I've seen on the internet. I, I saw people criticizing Firefox for falling to four vulnerabilities. And, uh, I mean, you said Java paid out $0, so presumably we should all be running the hot Java browser. Yes, I think both you and I have had people asking us about this, haven't we? You know, well, Firefox was attacked four times, pwned four times. The attacks were only worth 50000 each compared to 100000 for IE and Chrome. Therefore, Firefox is twice as insecure as either of those other browsers. Or... Maybe the sponsors just put the prize at 50k because they figured Firefox is popular with techies, it's more likely to attract attacks. What's more important, since all the products except Java were in fact successfully breached at some time, is uh, how quickly and effectively all the various vendors can respond. And the good news is Firefox 28.0 just came out this very day and all four of those holes already sorted. Yeah, it's my understanding the Chrome team uh, responded within days as well with uh, the, the two successful Chrome exploits. How times have changed, eh? A few short years ago, we'd have been saying, wow, these guys have patched this within three months. That's really quick. So that's a good sign that, you know, we can respond quickly and importantly, that people are prepared to accept patches quickly. And in general, Modulo a few problems that Microsoft had towards the end of last year. Quick patching doesn't seem to be the disaster area that it used to be. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I think the, the the big failure that we need to work on at the moment with regards to patching is more of our ability to accept and deploy those patches than it is about uh, vendors delivering them. I mean, there's always going to be some vendors who we pick on about the way they communicate or the regularity with which they patch that makes it harder on IT professionals. But there's really no good reason for, for most IT administrators to not be prepared for a Patch Tuesday or a Firefox fix. And, and just like those update boxes popping up and you needing to heed them and get those updates installed, it turns out Target was receiving some alerts early on in the breach last um, November 
uh, from some uh, um, malware management tools they had installed on the network. Uh, I mean, this whole alerting thing has turned into an interesting debate on naked security because uh, people are blaming target sysadmins saying, hey, if you got these alerts, how on earth did you still allow uh, the cards to continue to come out of the fire hose and be sent to the crooks? But on the other hand, a lot of sysadmins going, wait a minute, you know, I, I get hundreds of alerts. I can't respond to all of them every day. Like, we're inundated with this stuff sometimes, and it's difficult to know what to pay attention to what not. And, you know, I'm, I'm more willing to perhaps be a little more understanding of the target admins. Uh, you know, where do you fall on the spectrum? I sort of see both sides. Administrators these days are expected to accept big data and make sense of it because, hey, everyone's got logs they can turn on, the information's going to be in there somewhere. On the other hand, in Target's case, this wasn't just an ordinary breach on any old network. Uh, this was malware that was on, as far as I can tell, almost all of the cash registers throughout the entire network, throughout the company. You know, these are the computers that are expressly, explicitly set aside for customers to trust enough to put their card data through. So perhaps the problem here is that if you're going to have a network of that importance, where it's not just your data at risk, but your customer's data that you have a duty of care to protect, maybe actually that network should be set up, configured, wrapped separately in a corner, if you like, so that you don't get so many alerts from it that they get ignored. Well, when we talked about this in previous podcasts, I mean, unfortunately for Target, they've been a subject of many conversations between us over the last few months. But uh, the segregation is key. I mean, that's really the thing here that I see uh, in retail establishments over and over again. And the things that scare me is when I see dual use of payment uh, card machines or when I see that they're on the exact same networks as iPads and phones and all kinds of other stuff, like the, the lack of segregation of task and the segregation of network seems to be the source of pain. Yes, and our colleague John Shire just wrote a well worth reading article on Naked Security entitled Security Essentials, What is PCI DSS? And one of the things that comes out if you do go through that standard is it's very keen on segregating or isolating the payment card processing part of your network. But the standard does not actually say thou shalt. It just says, hey guys, this would be a really, really good idea. I think separation often uh, can make things easier, especially if it's specifically by task. Uh, when you're looking at point of sale machines, for example, if they're on their own VLAN, it seems to me it's a lot easier to put, you know, on that VLAN to lock down a firewall and say, you know what, no outbound IRC, no outbound FTP, in fact, no outbound HTTP except to these three servers where we do, you know, antivirus updating or Windows updates or, you know, depending on your methods. You know precisely what those systems need to communicate with. And to be honest, anything else is wrong. And if you have them mixed in with your regular network, it's hard to create those firewall rules and manage it and all these types of things. But if you know you've got the employee VLAN for guest Wi-Fi tablets and phone devices, and then you've got the VLAN for payment terminal devices, it would seem rather obvious which one's going to have loose settings and which one's going to have strict ones. In just the same way that you and I have been vigorously suggesting to people if they, if they must keep using XP on their lathes, for example, which is the example we used in the Techno podcast we did, 
segregate that part of the network so you actually reduce the risk that it puts the rest of the network at and you reduce its exposure to the outside. It's hard to see how that could possibly fail to make things easier to do properly. Yeah, and the cost these days of managing, say, you know, VLANs on Wi-Fi or even wired networks, it's kind of built into everything we own other than hopefully you're not running your organization on the $19 sales special switches. But if you're using anything that's actually designed for business use, uh, it's already there. It doesn't cost you anything other than a little bit of thought. And it's, I guess, one of these situations where uh, an ounce of prevention is a pound of cure kind of thing, right? Chester, if I can metricate it, it's probably even worse than that. You know, you look at Target, 40 million credit cards breached and 70 million records. It's more like a gram of prevention is worth a ton of cure. <laughs> All right, then. We, we also wrote on Naked Security about a, a somewhat uh, credible fish. I mean, it, it was, I mean, we see so many bad fishes, but the fact is I think there's as many good ones as there are for the bad. And there was one uh, pretending to be a, a terms and conditions update from a, a Bitcoin management tool. It just goes to show that simplicity can really help uh, when it comes to a fish. You get an email. It consists of one line of HTML, which brings in an image, which claims to come from a uh, Bitcoin exchange called Coinbase in San Francisco. Their user agreement has changed. Click here to read it. So they're not saying something terrible has happened. You've got to log in. Your Bitcoins are gone. But if you're a user of that service, you would probably think, well, I'll go and have a look. You go and have a look, you reach a site which is pretty much pixel perfect, mainly because they just ripped off the original site. So it doesn't take you straight to a login screen. It takes you to the screen you're used to. And then the only difference at that point is that then wherever you click, you end up at a sign-in screen. And if you're a regular user of this service, you're kind of going to be used to putting your credentials in at some point. Although you oughtn't to fall for it, it's easy to see how people could be tricked with a fish like this because it's just played with a very, very, very straight bat. With one exception that please people look out for this. No padlock, no HTTPS. Well, I would like to add on to that a little bit and just warn people that they ought to carefully inspect the URL, padlock or not, and that there are free ways to get SSL certificates. We have seen fishes and other things use SSL in the past as well. So I guess in this case, what you're saying is they wouldn't be able to get Coinbase's SSL certificate, right? That's Yes. If you see it's encrypted, click on it and very carefully look at the URL to see if it's in fact what you expect. This is something I would hope none of our listeners would fall for it, but it's the kind of thing that it would be very hard to point a finger at someone and say, wow, what were you thinking if they were to fall for this? My bottom line on all of this is don't be too quick before you click. Take time to look around just like you would before you cross the road. It could save you. Now, Google's algorithms are always kind of tracking and monitoring and figuring out what we're up to. And I understand that they've pinned you. <laughs> I know where you're going with this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I understand that they've pegged that you're very interested in Windows XP. And, and I'd have to agree because on the podcast, we've mentioned Windows XP nearly every week for the last uh, eight or 10 weeks. And so somehow Google's cottoned on to that and uh, is making some rather interesting product recommendations for you. Chester, I didn't think of it that way. It means that uh, Googlers are Chet Chat fans. That's nice to know. No, I, I, uh, 
I run a kind of lean, mean fighting machine on my Android tablet. I don't have, I use an AOSP basis and very little else. Uh, and one of the tools that I use, everybody should have this, Hacker's Keyboard, uh, which actually gives you the control key, escape, and cursor keys, so you can use VI on your Android tablet. Normally, I just keep the APK and reload it every time I reflash my tablet. But every now and then, I just go into Google Play and say, has there been an update? And so I did that yesterday, and I was offered at about half price a book called How to Do Everything with Windows XP. Uh, and not just any edition of the book, the third edition, Chester, recently updated to cover Service Pack 2. And apparently the great thing about Service Pack 2 is, uh, according to Google Play, it provides increased protection against viruses, hackers, and worms. <laughs> it's, uh, it, it's weird how these, these technologies work uh, when they decide to make recommendations. Well, in this case, I just thought, you know, the serious side of this, although I had a laugh, is it's kind of a pity to see an online source that is as influential as Google Play making recommendations of this sort right near the end of XP's life, as we have talked about many times. Uh, and the idea, particularly, of, you know, how to do everything with XP, we, of course, have been preaching exactly the opposite. If you must keep XP, make sure that your XP computers are in a corner of the network where they can't do everything. They can only do exactly what they're supposed to and no more. Mitigate your risk. Yeah, the, the primary usage for Windows XP is to burn the Windows 8.1 ISO, I believe. On that note, I'm going to conclude Software Security Chat Chat 139. As always, for the latest security news, please visit nakedsecurity.sophos.com. Uh, for all of our podcasts, including this one and our RSS feeds and all of our other audio content, you can go to soundcloud.com slash And until next time, stay secure.